turn to Romans chapter 2 for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Romans 2 verses 17 to 29. And this is in a section of Romans where Paul tells his readers why the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He begins by talking about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of pagan society. Uh, And then he shifts his attention to the Jews themselves, the religious type of people. Romans 2 beginning in verse 17, or rather in verse 12, hear the words of the Apostle Paul as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be judged, or who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. You who then teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the Word of the Lord. I'm sure many of you have heard of the 1980 U.S. men's gold medal hockey team. Uh, How many of you have seen the Disney movie Miracle? Anybody seen that? It's a great sports 
movie. And it's based on this special team. And in the movie, The Miracle, or Miracle, uh, Coach Herb Brooks, that was the name of the U.S. hockey coach at that time, played by the actor Kurt Russell, gives a, a powerful pregame speech to his team, and they needed it. They needed something to, to motivate them and to stir them up for the task at hand. The U.S. hockey team was outmatched by the Russians. Uh, at that time in America, all Olympians were amateurs. So the U.S. hockey team were amateurs, young kids, not much older than, than high school age, uh, early college age. But the Russians were stacked with a team full of professionals. And the Russians used to go on these exhibition games against the U.S. and they would destroy NHL all-star hockey teams. They would beat our pros. The Soviets um, hadn't lost an Olympic game in 12 years up to this point. They crushed the U.S. team in an exhibition earlier that year uh, at Madison Square Garden. They beat our kids, our guys, 10 to 3. That's like 65 to nothing in a football score. I mean, that's a, a massive blowout. But Coach Brooks believed in his team. Now, here are the words of his, uh, his pregame speech from the movie. I don't know if he gave this speech to his team. I'm sure he said something to them before the actual game, but this is the Hollywood version of it. And this is what he says. Great moments are born from great opportunities. That is what you earned here tonight. That's what you've earned. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born for this. This is your time. Go out and take it. You can imagine what the, the, the boys would have been feeling in the locker room. And they're ready to go. They're ready to charge that, that ice and defeat the Russians. In sports, the pregame talk is motivational. Its aim is to get the team to believe in themselves, their hard work, their ability to win. The coach needs his team to believe in themselves before they go out on the field. You're already defeated if you think you're going to lose, right? But Paul is not a coach. Paul's an evangelist. His goal is the total opposite. It's so contrary to human logic and to most human religious thought. His goal in preaching the gospel is to tell us how impossible it is to win our righteousness through our own self-effort. How unable it is, how unable we are to gain God's favor that would produce our justification before Him by our own works. His goal is to get us to stop believing in ourselves and start believing in Jesus. 
the opposite. How many of you wanted to hear that this morning? You are in a horrible position. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to gain God's favor. In fact, Paul says, you're under His wrath and His curse and His judgment. You're in a helpless and a hopeless position. Well, that's what the gospel, that's what the evangelist, the Bible-preaching, biblical evangelist needs us to understand. We're going to look at this section beginning in Romans 2.17 to the end of the chapter under two headings where Paul starts to attack, attack the, the self-dependency of the Jews who were religious people. They, they were happy to hear what he had to say about the homosexuals and the lesbians and the murderers and the thieves in chapter 1. They were like, yes, of course, those people are, are under God's wrath. And then Paul turns his finger at the self-righteous Jews who prayed, who went to temple, who fasted, who gave money, uh, all of these wonderful outward things. He says, you too are under the wrath of God, and you too need a Savior. So we're going to look first at what Paul says about how they rely on the law, and then second, what Paul says about the circumcision of the heart, relying on the law, and then circumcision of the heart. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve His, excellent, His excellence because you are instructed from the law, and he goes on. The Jews were full of confidence when they stood before God. They were a highly privileged people. They were God's chosen people. He selected them from all the nations of the earth uh, during the time of Moses when He delivered them out of Egypt. They boasted in this special relationship that they had with God. They were the recipients of the law. They knew moral right from wrong. They, they had the, the manual that gave them all of the information they needed. They had a right knowledge of God, and they worshipped rightly through special revelation. They viewed themselves as morally superior to the Gentiles. They had an, an arrogance, a spiritual arrogance to them. Verses 19 and 20 show this, this spirit that they had. Paul says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth. Paul plays these words off of each other. Guides to the blind, light to those in darkness, instructors to the foolish, teachers to children. It's the Jews versus the non-Jews. The Jews saw themselves as instructors, as teachers, as guides, and the, the, the rest of the Greek culture were blind, dark, ignorant, 
moral degenerates, all of these negative things. And that's how they looked upon them. They looked down. They were filled with this spiritual pride. We talked last week about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Oh, the Pharisee. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy over there, the tax collector. And the tax collector just can't even look up, beats his breast. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul knew this mindset very well because he lived it. He was a Pharisee himself. And not only was he a Pharisee, but he describes himself as excelling all the other Pharisees. He was the top of the top, so to speak. Uh, Philippians 3 is a great place to go to look at, at Paul's mindset. He says this in Philippians 3, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, these outward things, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, like the other Jews, as other people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So I, I maintained the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew language. I didn't speak Greek. I knew it, but I didn't speak it. I spoke Hebrew in my home and with my colleagues. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Very self-dependent in their inner uh, mindset. The Jews relied on the law. And this is what we mean by that. The law is good, and the law is something that we want to seek to understand and to shape our lives. We, the, the Ten Commandments, nothing wrong with them. But that's not what Paul's talking about when he says they relied on the law. No Christian should rely on their ability to keep the Ten Commandments as our way to gain God's favor, our way to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, our way to be declared righteous in His sight. The Jews did that. That was Paul's problem. Paul did that as a Pharisee himself. When they relied on the law, it was a self-confidence that they had the ability to do the law in such a way that they would gain God's favor. That God would, in His judgment of them on the judgment day, would say, Paul the Pharisee, welcome into my kingdom. You have been so scrupulous in your keeping of the law. Come on in, buddy. That's what their mindset was. And if we examine ourselves, do we have that mindset? Do we find ourselves falling back? I remember I grew up in uh, kind of a strange mix of, uh, of a Christian home. My dad was Roman Catholic and my mom was Southern Baptist. And back when they got married, that was not something that you did. Roman Catholics marry Roman Catholics and Baptists marry other evangelicals. Um, but I went to, to both churches and went through all of the Roman Catholic stuff and all the Southern Baptist stuff. When I was in college and uh, I was approached by a Campus Crusade um, staffer at, at the college I went to, he said, if you were to die today, why should God let you into His kingdom? It's a very simple question. It's used by a lot of these evangelists. And with all sincerity, I said, well, 
I've, I've never murdered anyone. What, what, what does that tell me about myself? That I'm basing God's acceptance on me based on my attitude, my acts, my works. Maybe I hadn't murdered anyone, but then uh, I didn't know what Jesus said in Romans 5, that if you're angry with someone in your heart, that's the same in God's eyes as murder. We, we are by nature programmed to trust ourselves for salvation. This is such a critical point in the ministry of Paul so radical to their way of thinking. How do we become righteous without our works? How do we become righteous simply by faith? That, that's not how it works, Paul. Listen to what he says. He makes this more clear that this is his point in Romans. In Romans chapter 9, verse 31. I want to read that first. I'll read verse 30. Paul says, now... <clears throat> Here, here's the interesting thing that he's saying. In Romans 1, he talked about the sins of the Greek world, the pagans. And he said that they were idolaters. They worshipped all kind of idols that they made in their head. And they were involved in some pretty serious and heinous sexual sin. They, were le they had lesbians and homosexuals and all. And then at the end he lists all manner of types of sins. And Paul is saying that the righteous pharisaical Jew who outwardly looked pretty moral and right and good, who went to temple like you go to church, who studied the law, who prayed and fasted, Paul was saying that there are converted sexual deviants and idolaters who are gaining God's righteousness and these righteous Jews are not. That's hard to, to, to fathom. But listen to what he says in Romans 9.30. What shall we say then that Gentiles, those who we talked about in Romans 1, that Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, that is righteousness through their moral efforts, through the law, they didn't pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is, they've attained a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who did pursue the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. And then look at chapter 10 of Romans, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. They look good outwardly, but their hearts are not right. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So many, even in good Bible preaching churches, stumble at this point. They put their confidence in themselves, and therefore they don't enter the kingdom of God. We don't want to admit that we're incapable. We want the gospel to be like Herb Brooks' pregame speech to tell us, guys, God loves you. You can do this. 
He, he appreciates your contributions to His kingdom. Just keep going. You got this. But Paul doesn't. Paul says, you're, you're just with all human beings. You are under the wrath and curse of God. And there's no way of escaping from this. The only hope you have is through Jesus. Now, there's a painful and obvious reality that Paul brings out. He says in verse 21, You who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is basically saying this, all of the sins you judge the Gentiles about, you, you commit yourselves. You are just as, as much a sinner as they are in the sight of God. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair or right. Well, just, let's just do a, a very quick overview of the history of the Jewish people. What do they do right after they get the Ten Commandments? And the, the big commandment that God's really concerned about is do not fall into idolatry. Do not create false images that you use to worship me. So what do they do? Their priest leads them to mold the golden calf. Right out of the blocks they show their sinful, stubborn hearts. Their history is marred with moral failure everywhere we, took, we look. The golden calf I've just mentioned. Their two greatest leaders. King David and wise King Solomon. King David falls into sexual immorality. Solomon in his later days when he should know better, when he should be more mature and more sanctified, he becomes an idolater. They're exiled from the land because they broke covenant with God. And guess what? As Paul is speaking to these Jewish hearers, they're still in exile. There's still something wrong with their relationship with God. They're not in the promised land. They're under Roman rule. Even the Gentiles see the foolishness and the hypocrisy, and they mock them. Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They know better. They know that there's no one perfect. No, not one. Anybody uh, catch in the news over the last couple of months what happened to Jerry Farwell Jr., president of Liberty University, a bastion of um, fundamental um, evangelicalism? You know, their school had this strict moral code. Most colleges, you know, SEC colleges, what, what, are you, uh, what are you worried that your kids are getting up to when they go to college? They're partying, they're boozing it up, all of that stuff. Well, not at Liberty. No, they had a strict code of conduct, no alcohol for our students, uh, no types of, of immorality whatsoever. But their own president had pictures taken of him out at, at nightclubs, drinking. Uh, had a phone call that somebody picked up on where he's 
drunk out of his mind. His wife is involved in sexual immorality. It makes the world look at that and say, what kind of hypocrisy is that? We've got to be very careful about our spirit in which we conduct ourselves. Let me turn, turn with me to um, Galatians 6. We do need to speak into the world Christian moral virtues. No doubt about that. But we need to do it in a gospel-immersed spirit. We need to remember who we are. You remember what Paul does often in his letters? He condemns sin, and then he says, I'm the chief of sinners. You need Jesus, but I need Him more than you need Him. That's the Spirit. Not, we're better than you. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, who possess the Holy Spirit, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when we speak as Christians to the world about some of the moral chaos that's going on out there, we do so knowing that we could just as easily trip up and be tempted and fall by it. We do it pleading for the world to come to Christ, not pointing our fingers and looking down our noses at them. There's no place for that. So Paul condemns them for their trust in the law, which was hypocrisy. And then he moves on to the circumcision of the heart, beginning in verse 25. And that's our second point, circumcision of the heart. In addition to the law, the Jews rested on outward signs and inward, instead of inward realities. Verse 25 of Romans 2, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he goes on. Circumcision was performed by the Jewish people on their male children at, the, at eight days old. It was a sign of the relationship, the special relationship that they had with God. God was their God. They were His people. It served a number of purposes. First, it physically marked the person out as a member of the covenant people, as, the, as a Jew, as a child of God. Second, it was a sign of sin, and this is what they totally missed. It, it was a sign of sin. See, the, the circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ was to symbolize, by way of sign, the cutting away of the flesh, the need for the human heart to, uh, to have that sinful nature stripped away from it and replaced with a new heart, a new spirit. They missed that. And then third, and they missed this too, it was to point them to Christ as the male child, the promised Messiah who would crush the devil in the reign of sin and give His people new hearts. 
physical circumcision is only of value when it is accompanied by spiritual realities. And it's the same with baptism. Our confidence isn't in the fact that an infant was baptized or that an adult making a profession of faith was baptized and had water sprinkled on their head. We, we, we want the inward realities. We want the faith that draws them to Christ and brings about the cleansing of their sin, not, not through the outward washing of water, but the inward renewal of the heart. This was true even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses says this to the Jews, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. You had the outward sign, but not the inward reality. Circumcision is of value. Just as baptism is, just as the Lord's Supper is, it's of value when it's accompanied by the corresponding spiritual reality. God, this is what I want you to take away from this, and, and, and this is what Paul wanted the, the Jews to understand. God isn't concerned with your outward forms of religion. He's concerned with the inward state of your heart. Do you really believe, do you really dedicate your life wholeheartedly to serving him. One of the books that really shook me up a lot as an early Christian and one of my favorite books was written by an English Puritan back in the 1600s named John Flavel. And the title of the book is Keeping the Heart. It's a short little book. I'd recommend it if you can get your hands on it. And the book is based on a proverb, Proverb chapter 4, verse 23. Some of you will be familiar with this. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep the heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Flavel writes, By keeping the heart, understand the diligent, and constant use of improvement of all holy means and duties to preserve the soul from sin and maintain sweet and free communion with God. Alright, when we start to think of our relationship with God, not based on whether we went to church this Sunday, whether we were baptized, whether we read our Bibles, but a constant heart that is seeking communion with Him, seeking to use the, the means that He gives us. When, when that's how we think about our relationship, then we begin to understand why Paul says that even the Jews are under the wrath of God. I told the congregation at 8.30 uh, how I, I know in my own experience, when I pray sometimes, I, you know, we all want to give ourselves to prayer and, and stir our hearts up to pray. Well, I pray sometimes. Let me tell you how it went this week. Started praying. Started praying for my family. Started praying for myself. Started praying for the church. Started thinking about Florida and Texas A&M coming up Saturday. Well, what in the world? How did that happen? I'm praying and I can't keep my mind straight. 
And that's a good example. We know that sometimes in our prayers, we, we were praying and then five minutes later we're like, how did I get from our Father who art in heaven to whatever I'm thinking about here? How did I get here? The disciples. What did Jesus say to them in the Garden of Gethsemane? You, I'm about to die tomorrow. And you guys fall asleep. You can't even give yourself to prayer at this critical moment. You see, when we start to grasp that God is really concerned with our heart, we start to see that we have real sin problems. We may look great on the outside, but on the inside we are sinners. And it drives us when we start to engage at the heart level. We start to see how desperate we are for Jesus. And that's why you see oftentimes some of the more older, mature saints are much more humble and gracious because they know their own hearts. Do you know your heart? Are you prone to pride and judgment and criticism or humility and grace and gospel? Listen to what Flavel says. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. That's the problem Paul's having with the Jews. I've got to convince them, Paul is thinking, that their hearts are wrong even though they look so pure outside. Jesus does this so much in Matthew's Gospel too. So the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. The Jews stress the outward show of religion and circumcision, outward acts such as prayer, fasting, giving to the poor, outward forms of worship. But Jesus critiques them. In Matthew 15, He says this, You hypocrites, this is our Savior, speaking to His people, the Jews. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Our lips, praise God, we did the, the apostolic creed. Our lips were right on theologically, but were your hearts? You may be in step today, but tell me, What's your relationship, what's your commitment to God Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? What's your commitment to God in the way you treat your wife or your husband or your children? You see, when we start to analyze it like this, we start to feel ourselves more like the tax collector than the Pharisee. Pharisee, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. But when we analyze our heart, we say, Oh Lord, just like the Pharisee, be merciful to me. Saved by, but by the grace of God, I would be just like whatever we want to look at and point to in our society that's falling apart morally. A close examine of our hearts instead of our outward religion reveals major problems. As we measure our hearts against the standard of God's holy law, we realize we're far from Him. 
prophet uh, Jeremiah makes a troubling observation about the Jews again. In Jeremiah 17, verses 1 and 9, Jeremiah says this, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point with the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. They're sinners. They're filthy. They're defiled. No matter how many sacrifices they offer, no matter how much purifying they do, their, their hearts are wrong. And then he says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? What the Gospel is telling us is we don't need more knowledge of the law. We don't need more outward signs like circumcision. What the Gospel is telling us is we've got a fundamental problem with our nature. We need new hearts. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. Not we can correct this and fix this and get you better. No, we've got to start all over. We've got to put you to death on the cross and we've got to raise you up as something new. We've got to do it all again. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36 he says this to the Jews. This is what they need. In the hope of the new covenant, in Ezekiel 36, 24, the prophet writes these words from God, God's promise in the gospel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, the circumcision uh, idea there. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, the Jews thought by having the law they could keep it. The law just exposed the problem with their nature. They didn't need more law. They needed to die, be buried, and raised to a new creation in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you are born again in Christ, that is exactly what's happened to you. Your heart has been stripped away. Jesus has given you a new heart. He has caused you to be born again. Your old man has died. You've been raised with Christ. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Jesus offers that to all sinners, all who will come to Him, lay their pride before His feet, and take Him and only Him by faith as their hope of righteousness. Will you come to Christ? Amen. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the information we received from Paul about his gospel. We thank you, O oh Lord, that he doesn't give us a motivational speech, but he comes as an evangelist to break us down and to remind us that we are under the wrath of God unless we come to Christ and seek a righteousness that doesn't come through our works, but comes through faith in him. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that we stand before You as righteous today, not by anything we've done, but by what we have received from Your Son through faith. Amen.